I feel like I start all of these with, okay, hello. <laughs> I mean, it's a great greeting because it's, it's pretty, you know, uh, it, it's generic and inviting and welcoming. And short. <laughs> and short. And short. Emphasis on the short. Short and sweet and to the point. Fair. <laughs> um, so we're back for our fourth episode. I say that episode and also happy 2020 happy 2020 that's right it's the new year it's the new year we haven't put out an episode this year at all first episode of the year Woo! first episode of the year super freaking exciting and it's on your birthday (laughs) well we're recording on your birthday it's on my birthday It'll be, it'll be like, it'll be a full week of celebrations because we'll be recording this day and then after that everyone's going to be like, oh my god, happy birthday, after they listen to it, after we released it in like a week. So. Yeah. <laughs> this will go out at the end of the week, but everyone will be like, oh my god, it's your birthday, happy birthday. Um, but it's cool that we're recording <sighs> it on your birthday. So it was my birthday. Yes. It Yay, was. Best birthday present ever. <laughs> spending time with friends. Spending time with friends. I love spending time with friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's our new that's our new intro song. <laughs> Sorry, Sam. Done. Don't tell Sam. Don't tell Sam. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we get to talk about creepy stuff today. <laughs> Which is our favorite thing. So My I guess favorite topic. Yeah, it's a good yes. way to spend your birthday. Absolutely. Um, and for once, um I'm not doing murder. I'm doing death, but I'm not doing murder. Or so we think. Yes. <laughs> Well, I'm not. I'm not really doing murder either. Um, so. Oh, good. We're taking a break. Yeah, we're taking we're taking a break from like. Well, I was gonna say we're taking a break from like horrible things, but like that's not really true. Um, I mean, there's like there's there's like a little sprinkle of murder in the backstory of mine, but like the actual story does not involve murder. Um, so there's that, but um. No, I mean, this this episode, which, by the way, if you've gotten this far, um, welcome to the Herlocked Files. Um, it's our true crime and pop culture podcast where we talk about, you know, our favorite and least favorite uh, things that happen in the world that are kind of sad and terrible and horrible, but we find very interesting in terms of, like, how everything happens and how it works and stuff. Um, along with video games and movies and pop culture references, um, and we kind of connect the dots and do all that fun stuff. We go down the rabbit holes and you listen to us explain it. Exactly. Um, in a very hopefully respectful manner. <laughs> yes. Yeah, for this one, I definitely just kept it, um, especially with mine. Mine actually goes uh, partly into another language. Um, so I, I tried to keep it to where I'm not butchering people's names, uh, but I can at least, uh, give, pay them homage and actually bring them into the story and just saying, instead of just saying this person does this and that happened to this person. So, uh, uh, hopefully, um, that, that that comes across because that's definitely was my intention. Yeah. I feel like this episode, we're definitely going to potentially mess up some names and, um, we, we're not we're trying our best <laughs> we're, we're trying our best um but our, our twitter dms will be ready for all of your corrections yes <laughs> fair um but 
Yeva actually picked um, the the theme, I guess. Like, it wasn't necessarily a theme, but you're the one who, yeah. you messaged me and you were like, I want to do this story. And I was like, I will find something that will kind of, sort of go with that. So, <laughs> that's kind of how we put together yeah. this one. Uh, the theme? Yeah, the theme for this one, I was hoping uh, to kind of make, um, you know, centered around, it is winter time. Um, I know for, for the Southern uh, Hemisphere that that isn't really the case where it's cold and wintry and blustery. Um, but um, I have, this one has been on my list since I think you and I first started talking about this podcast. Yes. Of like, this is a really cool story. And I've played the game um, that actually goes along with it. So it's... Um, it's it's kind of a it's a nice little meld of of what we wanted the podcast to be to finally being like a couple episodes in and like knowing our rhythm and bringing everything in. So I'm very excited to talk about my, my yeah. stuff with with Colot. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I kind of like tried to find something wintry, but failed. Um, and then kind of stuck to like more like mysterious, unexplained disappearances kind of thing so Ooh. it's not a full disappearance Perfect. it's just a it's a giant mystery it's a giant mystery so My, yeah and actually um from when the game came out and then also when all of this this hubbub actually around the story when everyone was just like i can't believe this is still unsolved um the actual um investigation ended last year um, so they, they actually came out with different findings and a different conclusion, which I'll actually go into. Whoa. Um, so, and, I, and I don't know if it's best to start with all the conspiracy theories and then go to the final conclusion or start with the final conclusion and then go through the conspiracy theories. Because honestly, they're all great. So <laughs> I don't know which one to start with yet. Well, I'm sure either, either way will be perfect because, I mean, it's all interesting. So There's a lot. There's, There's a lot. lot. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot. Oh, um, my goodness, there's yeah. so much. So should we just jump in? Should we right. should we do it? Yeah. Okay. I think we're ready. I think we're ready to to, to transport our listeners to to uh to the unknown and the unexplained. Yes. And the the hopefully moderately explained with some good conspiracy theories. Uh, conspiracy theory. Uh, goodness. So. Yeah, I feel like yours has a conclusion, but mine doesn't. <laughs> Mine's a bunch of conspiracy theories. Um, so I'm going Love first it. this time. Um, Go ahead. And yeah. yeah, I'm going to tell you guys about a ghost ship. Um, so specifically, the Orang Madan ghost ship. Which I feel like if Love you're a video already. game nerd, you Love already know already. where this is going. Yeah, if you if you're into video games, you already know where this is going. But we'll start on the side of history first before we get into gaming. Um, so there are various reports um, about the time at which this incident took place. So it already starts out on a mystery because there are two different dates for this event. Um, and no one can decipher oh when it actually took place. But a strange radio message was received by numerous ships traveling along the straits of, and we're already getting into messing up words, Malacca? I hope I'm saying that right. 
Okay. Around Sumatra and Malaysia. And this took place okay. in either June of 1947 or February of 1948. Oh, boy. It's not even That's close. That's, those are significantly different. Holy crap. <laughs> They're significantly different. Um, the origins of this SOS message were not known. Um, and it was divided into two parts separated by Morse code that could not be deciphered. So basically, like, they got a radio message that was in Morse code, and they were able to decipher the first sentence, then the following sentence was, like, completely jumbled, like, it didn't make any sense, and then the last sentence. And it read out, all officers, including the captain, are dead, lying in chart room and bridge, possibly whole crew dead, then the like gibberish and then it ends with i die (laughs) holy moly just like straight up like that's it like could you imagine being on a boat and getting like that radio message and being like hello no i don't know i i wouldn't i mean the first sentence alone is absolutely terrifying but to then not understand what the heck is happening and then just end on the word die that's pretty awful yeah as if like they they suspect that the person sending the message was in the process of dying and was trying Mm. to do morse code and that that whole gibberish middle part was probably them just like messing it up um Oh, no. But they were because they were dying, and then they were able to send mm-hmm. the message "I die," which is just like ominous AF and terrifying. Um, and then there was there was nothing after that, so oh, wow. no no more message. So two ships, both American, were compelled to investigate. And with the help of British and Dutch listening posts, they were able to actually locate the coordinates of the message that was transmitted and find the vessel that it came from. So it was a Dutch... Collaborative effort. Yeah, collaborative effort. They, like, reached out and they were like, hey, can we get some assistance? Where where did this really terrifying message come from? Um, My God. (laughs) So it was a Dutch freighter called the SS Orang Madan, and the American merchant ship titled the Silver Star was the ship that went to go find them. Um, okay. And once they spotted uh, the Madan, the Silver Star crew could see no visible signs of life on deck of the ship. Um, and all efforts to contact anyone on board had failed. So the ship was just drifting aimlessly in the water with no power to the motors and no actual outside appearance of any damage either. So it didn't look like wow. it got hit with anything. It didn't look like it was attacked, but there was like nobody that they could see on board. So a search party was put together to go and board the ship. And on deck, the search party found the entire deck hauntingly littered with corpses of the Dutch crew. Um, wow. The victims that they found were found wide-eyed with horror on their faces, um, like or wide-eyed with horror and their faces like twisted in terror, like as if they were screaming. 
um, and their arms were stuck in defensive poses, as if, like, rigor mortis had set in so quickly that their arms never fell when they died, so they were all in, like, protective, like, terrified stances, as if, like, they were defending themselves when they died. Um, I can't even imagine walking through this boat right now. That's awful. Like, isn't that just, like, like you're literally entering a horror movie? Ooh. Um, And even the ship's dog was found mid-snarl. Like, even the dog had died. And it was, like, found, like, mid, like, as if it was, like, snarling at something terrifying. And it just, like, stuck that way. Um, oh, my God. The captain was found where he was expected to be, which was his bridge. Um, the bridge officers were in the wheelhouse and the chart room, which is um, mm -hmm. what the message had said. The message had said that the officers and the captain were lying dead in the chart room and the bridge. Um, the radio mm -hmm. operator was dead at his station, which was to be expected after the message that they sent. Um, and the engineering crew were also found dead at their stations as well. Every single person had the same expression on their face. Which wow. is just, like, messed up. And it's not like they... And it's not like they ran from anything. Like, they're in where you would expect them to be, doing what you would expect them to do. And then it's... Yeah. They're, they're, they're not... It's not like they're all huddled somewhere. It's not like there's barricades. It's not like right. there's anything that they actually ran from that terrified them. Right. But they're... Yeah. Wow. That's... Oof. Okay. Good job setting the scene, by the way. Holy crap. <laughs> Thank you. I hope everyone is very... You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, the search party members also noticed several things that they thought were strange. I mean, besides the horrified dead people. Um, the local temperature outside was 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so very hot. Yet they constantly felt a very chill hot. around the ship. Like, they just felt like an odd chill around the ship. Um, all the victims appeared to have no injuries, minor or life-threatening. Um, even though they had seemed as if they had suffered, they had literally no injuries at all that would um, show you how they died. Um, and then the no other... external or potentially internal? Right, exactly. I mean, granted, they never... I'll, I'll get to why they don't have any internal injuries, but no external injuries. Um, okay. And then it also said that the bodies were also decaying faster than they should have been, which personally, I don't actually think that's mm. a strange thing because like if you're saying that it's 100 degrees Fahrenheit and most of the people are out on the deck, um, it would make sense that they decay at a faster rate seeing as how like bodies decay faster in heat and direct sunlight. So... I don't know if I totally count that one as a strange occurrence, but it was listed as one of the things that they thought was strange was that the bodies were decaying faster than supposedly normal. However, if you don't know when right. they had died and you're also out in, like, terrible heat, I feel like that's mm -hmm. thrown in to be like, whoa, spooky. But, like, I don't know if I totally believe that one. Um, moisture and salt and sun yeah. exposure and wind exposure and a million other things. Yeah. yeah, there's, like, a lot of variables yep. there to just be, like, they were decaying faster. I feel like that's, like, meh. But everything else is creepy. <laughs> um, yeah, super creepy. Super creepy. So, 
the Silver Star decided to tow the Madan in hopes of salvaging it and also continuing the investigation. Um, however, once they tethered to the boat, all of a sudden smoke and fire broke out below deck, specifically in the number four cargo hold. And within seconds of severing the tow rope, the Orang Madan exploded with enough force to lift it into the air and then sink below the ocean surface. <laughs> Your face right now. So goodbye is crime scene. Goodbye crime scene. <laughs> so that's why, like, you can't, like, I can't officially say, I, no one can officially say that there were no internal injuries to these people because they weren't able right. to do an autopsy. Um, they and just no, looked around. Yeah, no toxicology reports. Nope. Nothing. No pathology. Nothing. No nothing. They couldn't. God damn. They didn't really get to fully investigate the ship. They didn't get to investigate the cargo it was carrying. Like it just sunk mm -hmm. to the bottom of the ocean. So, wow. The first English record of this is incident wasn't made until May of 1952. Oh, good lord! And it was made by the U.S. Coast Guard, with a witness testimony stating. Their frozen faces upturned to the sun, staring as if in fear. The mouths were gaping open and eyes staring. So there's speculation to whether or not this happened, which is where the conspiracy theories come in. Because oh, no one, so, so we don't know if it happened in June of 1947. We don't know if it happened in February mm -hmm. of 1948. It wasn't made known in a U.S. publication until 1952. And wow. no one knows if this really happened due to the fact that there is absolutely no record of the Orang Madan ever existing. So the Silver Star was a real vessel. But during the time of the Madan's downfall, mm -hmm. the Silver Star was operating under another registration, Santa Juana. And those who believe the story state that the Madan was registered in Sumatra at, and uh, at the time Sumatra was a Dutch colony. So it would make sense that right. if the ship right. was registered in Sumatra and was being operated by a Dutch crew, it would make sense because Sumatra was a Dutch colony. Um, Orang mm -hmm. means man in Indonesian and Madan is the largest city on the island of Sumatra. So thus the name of the ship is okay. Man from Madan. Mm -hmm. Um but that still doesn't so like the pieces of like how the ship's name got named, the pieces of like why was the why was the crew Dutch, like those all kind of make sense um together. However, it doesn't solve the issue as to why there's no record to back this up. The Lloyd's right. Shipping Registers and the Dictionary of Disasters at Sea from 1824 to 1962 both have zero mention of the Madan. So there's just like no, there's no paper trail of this ship being in existence. Um, mm -hmm. The story's first appearance, so, uh, before the U.S. made an official statement, there are um, stories that were published about this happening. And they're traced back to a series of three articles in a Dutch Indonesian newspaper in 1948, which is how you get the February date. Okay. 
So, like, that comes from, like, the three Dutch Indonesian articles. Uh, but there's significant differences in these articles. For instance, like, the name of the ship is never mentioned in the articles. Um, mm. And the second and third articles describe the experience that happened on the Madan from a sole survivor, which there supposedly was no one that survived. So, like, how is there a sole survivor of the Madan right. if everyone was dead? Um, but the man, right. before perishing, tells a missionary that the ship was carrying a badly stowed cargo of sulfuric acid and that most of the crew perished because of the poisonous fumes escaping from broken containers. Yeah, that's that's very dangerous material. Holy crap. Yeah. But however, like, that's just, like, a story, you know? Like, no one can... Again. Yeah, it's yeah. speculation again. No one can really back it up. So, mm -hmm. I'm gonna really mess up this person's name. <laughs> but Professor Theodore... Seerstofer? Of Essen in Germany? It's a German name. I already messed it up. Okay. I know it. Um, this man spent 50 years researching this story. And um, wow. through, all of, through all of his research, uh, it was the first to mention the names of the American ship that originally went in pursuit of Madan. Um, but he also references a German booklet that was written in 1954 by Otto milk 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 i'm already messing that up as well um i'm sorry <laughs> um but through all of his like studies he often uh references this booklet um and this uh this author otto uh seemed to know a vast amount of information about the route okay. the cargo the name of the captain of the madan like this was um wow Theodore's main source of material because it seemed to have a lot of information. However, this booklet establishes the date as June of 1947. Um, and it and this booklet has been rumored to be authenticated by one of the Silver Star crew members. So um, you you know okay. there's a lot of people who believe that this really happened would put more stock into Otto's booklet. Um, especially because the booklet also mentions that the cargo hold could have been storing, um, or the, it, the booklet mentioned what the cargo hold could have been storing and stating that it contained potassium cyanide and nitroglycerin, which if this is true, it would explain why there's no official records of the ship and right. also why there right. was a random explosion. Um, yep. So it kind of fills in the holes a little bit. Not really. Now, there are some people who believe that the ship was carrying something much worse. And that's why there's no record of it. Um, worse than nitroglycerin and other explosive material? Yeah, worse than sulfuric oh, acid, boy. worse than potassium cyanide, worse than nitroglycerin. Like, worse. Um, and what they believe that the oh, ship was carrying okay. was biological weapons manufactured by Japanese scientists that were being smuggled out of Unit 731. So, a little sidestep. Unit 731 mm -hmm. was a covert biological and chemical warfare research and development unit in Imperial Jap in the uh, unit of the Imperial Japanese Army 
that uh, undertook mm. lethal human experimentation during the Second Sino-Japanese War of World War II. So yes. this was a horrific thing that did happen that I'm going to get into some really terrible and awful details. Um, so just you, everyone's being warned now. Um, this is not like a fun ghost. Really good that comes out of an experimentation. No, yeah. this one's not really a great like fun ghost story. Um, so it was, uh, this unit was responsible for the most notorious war crimes carried out by Imperial Japan. They referred to their human subjects as logs, and estimates of those killed range up to half a million. These researchers were given immunity, secretly, given immunity by the U.S., in exchange for the data they had learned. Uh, Soviet forces managed to arrest some of them and actually tried some of them. Uh, however, the U.S. did not take any of them to trial uh, so that they could gain the information, experiences, and co-opt any of the bioweapons that they had created um, into their biological warfare program, which is similar to what they did with Operation Paperclip, which if you've listened to our... Yes previous episodes i talk a lot i've talked prior about operation paperclip so i think that's funny that that came back around um but full circle, full circle. but so the u.s did the same thing with japan that they did with germany by like kind of making a deal instead of mm -hmm. like arresting people so that they could um co-opt any of the biological weapons as well as the research that they did um, now, again, I want to state what Unit 731 did was absolutely horrific. Um, I'm about to tell you some of the things that they did. If you don't want to listen to this part, you can just, like, slide the little little nugget forward just a few minutes um, if you're squeamish or just, like, don't want to listen to these horrific events. But I do think it's um, – I don't go into, like, full detail – but I do think it's, like, important to point out what they did because it is, like, it's inhuman. And it's just, like, this shouldn't be, like, swept under the rug as, like, they did horrible stuff. Um, yeah, and, and as with most um, human and especially mass genocides, um, they are important to uh, to both pay homage to, but also they're important to understand so it doesn't fucking happen again. Exactly. Um, so these things are, are important to talk about. Um, they're not great, but so are so many different facets of, of human life. Um, and it's important for us to not only look at it as a respectful lens, just as Zoe said, um, but also to, to make sure that we acknowledge that it happened so it doesn't happen again. Exactly. And like also like into I- Into the squeamish stuff. Into the squeamish stuff. Well, also I didn't know any of this. Like I didn't even know this had happened. Mm -hmm. So, like, reading all of these things that happened, like, I didn't, I had no idea that this occurred, and I was like, what the actual fuck? Um, yep. So, they had, they had a special project, uh, codenamed Maruda, where they used humans in their experiments. Uh, the term for their subjects, like I said, was, they called humans logs, and that had originated due to the fact that the, the facility's cover story was a lumber mill. Um, uh, 
Researchers had also published some of their results in peer-reviewed journals, with their writings stating that the research had been conducted on non-human primates called Manchurian monkeys, which there's no such thing as a Manchurian monkey. Manchuria is the region of, in Northeast Asia, but that's not like a species of monkeys. So they literally, in their published works, didn't even refer to their subjects by the like as accurately as humans they didn't they yeah. didn't say that they were humans um for a variety of reasons but also like it's dehumanizing and disgusting um the test subjects were selected to give a wide cross-section of the population and they included common criminals captured bandits anti-japanese partisans political prisoners homeless mentally handicapped and also people rounded up by um, the military police for alleged suspicious activity. These people included infants, elderly, and pregnant women, um, as well as men. Uh, prisoners were injected with diseases disguised as vaccinations to study their effects. Thousands of men, women, and children, and infants were subject to vivisection or V-section, which is when they do surgery on a fully awake and conscious patient to study the effects yep. of the nervous system and like how your body responds to surgery while you're awake, um, which often resulted in the death of the prisoner. Lim limbs were amputated to study blood loss. Uh, they were detached and reattached on opposite sides of the body. Organs were removed. Systems were altered to see if they were, like, still functioning, if you, like, took a certain part out. I mean, like, these were, like, terrible, terrible things. And often a lot of them were just, like, there was no point. They just wanted to see what would happen, which is, like, fucked up in its own understand. sense. Yeah. Or yeah. Uh, they also studied biological warfare, creating epidemic-type weapons like plague-infected fleas, which they created uh, and deployed on Chinese populations. So they would do aerial sprayings of bubonic plague. They would spread typhoid germs into wells and marshes and people's houses. And this all occurred in coastal cities inside the Hunan province on, like, innocent civilians. Like, they were just experimenting on, like, random people outside of the facility where they were experimenting on random people. Mm. Um, they tested uh, prisoners. They tested on prisoners with bubonic plague, cholera, smallpox, botulism, anthrax. Um, other experiments included right. testing grenades on human subjects where they would place grenades at various distances and positions to see their effect. Um, other subjects were deprived of food and water to determine the length of the time until death. They were placed in low-pressure chambers until their eyes popped. Um, they were experimented on different temperature levels, whether freezing or super hot. They were electrocuted, placed in centrifuges, exposed to x-rays, gas chambers, burned and buried alive. I mean, like, they did it all. And it's fucking horrific. Unit members also forced sex acts to transmit diseases, mostly syphilis. Women were forced into pregnancy. 
so that their reproductive organs could be studied, as well as the mother-to-child transmission of diseases was also of interest. And there were a number of babies born in captivity. However, there is no account of any survivors, children included, which means that they were either killed or aborted. So that's it. That's, this is where you scrub to if you didn't want to listen to any of the horrific events in Unit 731. Um, this is where you would scrub to. Uh, it's just, it's horrifying. And I, I didn't even know what happened, which is, like, insane. Um, yeah. They don't, there's, like, there's, like, records of this later on, but, just like. Just the pure apathy. Yeah. Just like. The, just the pure apathy and and like you can't even say that oh it was it was for science that wasn't science no science finds a way to do that humanely that was that was pure and simple absolute complete genocide yeah that there, there there was no there 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 is no way to justify any of that because there are tons of ways that you can find that in both more humane and also not with human experimentation right and i mean like this is similar to like the experiments that like like one of the articles i was reading was like these experiments these experiments would make the nazis shudder and like we know of like the experiments that happened under the nazi regime like we know like the horrific things that they did to people um but i had no idea this happened and that i think was one Mm -hmm. of the things that i like had such a problem with is that i'm reading all of these horrific things that happened to people and i'm like what like we don't this was like swept under the rug um almost you know like well not completely we, but and we also kind of know why yeah because you know it, it's hard to it's hard to partner with a with a country after a certain country forgives you for your ill ill-gotten ways yeah uh, in order to also gain a leg up on another country so it's 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 one of those um i'm sure that there are parts of this world where this is taught and that this is that this is a a central part of their education uh but i know for for you and me that this was not part of the american education as are many things um but it's definitely um it's definitely not uh not an easy topic um, but I think it is an important one, and like like we have stated a couple times before, this is this is so it doesn't freaking happen again. Yeah, yeah. This is like this is so that we learn, and especially because I think it also gives um, a wider lens to like what ha- I feel like in, it, when we talk about history, like we talk about like the same tragic events over and over again, and we like kind of Mm -hmm. centralize it to a certain type of person and we're like only this type of person can commit these atrocities but when we start to kind of unfold other historical events that are similar or worse or not as worse like we start to realize that like this can happen to anyone by anyone um and it has like more than one type of person has committed such atrocities and that we need to kind of understand that like there's you know horrific things happening in history and we need to recognize that it's happened more than once and we need to not have it and happen with again different groups of people, with different groups of people by by different groups exactly. of people um different exactly. circumstances different levels of horrific events i mean like it's just we need to like not have it ever happen again and we need to recognize that it happened more than once um so out of the really dark part We'll go back to the ghost ship. Um, the 
so so this is why um, people believe the Orangmadon could have been carrying a biological weapon developed by Unit 731, because it's in the same kind of area. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that there was no um, record of the ship existing could be why, because if it's carrying a f- crazy biological weapon, like, you don't want anyone to know. So right. it's possible that the nondescript merchant vessel with a foreign crew would be used because it wouldn't draw attention. Um, it is one of the main theories. Uh, so, so going back a little bit, it's one of the, one of the theories from before was that the Madon was smuggling chemical substances such as potassium cyanide and nitroglycerin, um, or even possibly mm-hmm. stocks of nerve agents. Uh, when seawater mixes and enters the ship's hold, it could have reacted with the cargo, released a toxic gas, um, and that would explain how the crew succumbed to asphyxia or poisoning. And then when the sea reacted with the nitroglycerin, that's how it caused a, a fire and then a later explosion. Um, the nerve gas theory is is what stems from like the Japanese military attempting to hand over that biological weapon to the U.S. without a paper trail. Um, and then things went wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, carbon monoxide poisoning is an additional theory that it could explain the deaths of all on board as well as the fire, where like a malfunction with the ship's boiler system would have been the catalyst of that. However, none of those chemicals, like the nerve gas, the potassium cyanide, the nitroglycerin, the carbon monoxide, none of that explains how the bodies looked upon death, which is why right. the main theory is that an unknown biological weapon, experimental substance from Unit 71. That's why that theory is so popular. And why people keep mm-hmm. glomming onto that theory is because, like, we can explain, you know, death without visible um, evidence. We can explain fires and explosions and how an entire crew kind of all died at once. Like, we can explain that through, like, um, possibilities of like chemicals being you know released as a gas and kind of going throughout the ship however no one can explain well, the you've even seen horror instances with um carbon monoxide like yeah. you like you've even seen that when carbon monoxide would leak on um would leak on cruise ships or would leak on regular ships or if there again was a toxic leak or anything that happened um in enclosed spaces that's definitely been documented um oh yeah that, but uh as sorry me cut you off but no when it, when it came to the the horror aspect that's definitely the that's definitely the the interesting part of this specific case right exactly is is the the look of horror on these people's faces the way that rigor mortis set in so suddenly i mean because like if you're like scared to death and you drop and you fall on the ground like your your limbs are gonna go everywhere but the fact that they died frozen in like a defensive stance kind of like Mm -hmm. simulates like or or it kind of gives you pause as to like what caused that like why were they frozen in fear um and the only thing that can really potentially explain that is a substance that we don't know which would have been a biological weapon that would have been created in that area which would have most likely come from unit 731 um there is absolutely a hell of a lot of skepticism, though, over whether any of this actually happened um, due to the fact that mm-hmm. there's no records of this 
there's there are records of the story but nor no records of the actual incident there's no record of the attempted rescue in any of the S silver stars logs as well um and many factors of this could just be from inaccuracy exaggeration or complete fiction which is why the orangmadon is still listed as a major mystery and a ghost ship that no one knows whether or not it really existed at all or whether or not the silver star did anything like right and if there isn't any accurate reporting um i'm sure that some wealthy someone or other um has anybody tried to go um diving to see if they can find any wreckages in the purported place of where it could be uh not that i found but i also was curious about that i'm like if it sunk yeah. like did it sink to like too deep of like because like the ocean's like hella deep you know <laughs> like yeah oh yeah it could have sunk to like a place where like people just can't find it you know um yeah and also it's, it's one when of the you most unexplored places on our planet so yeah that's for sure and also like with the inaccuracies i mean like the location of the the coordinates of the ship i mean i think the only coordinates that are on record are in that german booklet um and mm -hmm. so like if you can't find it there like it could be anywhere there's so many inaccuracies where do you start right. you know you can't sweep the whole ocean right. floor um but it's 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 a good theory as to like someone should go like see if they can find it and see if it really happened yeah that would prove if it really happened if you can find the ship in the water um yep but if you if you listen thus far and you're like itching for me to just say that it's a video game it is because i'm sure a lot it of is. words popped out as familiar um so you probably know where this is going because in august of 2019 Supermassive Games developed a game uh, as part of their Dark Pictures anthology called Man of Medan, which at the time I thought it was called Man of Medan, and I kept saying Man of Medan, and it's wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's Medan, which also, like, I knew that it was based off a real ship, but I had never done the research, and there are so many, like, somebody read about this ghost ship and like just like took everything <laughs> because the 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 similarities are like spot on like it's literally a direct like a, a fictional horrific take on what happened like it, it really is based on its urban legend which i mean you could call the orangmadon an urban legend you can call it a ghost ship you can call it whatever whatever you want for what you believe happened um but like right. i said previously the orangmadon is called man from madon so their game mm -hmm. is called man of madon um it is the first of eight planned installments in the series um Ooh. which i didn't know I didn't there know was that. gonna be eight <laughs> i was like wait what that's kind of cool <laughs> that is cool um so there's there it's the first of eight planned we'll see if we actually get eight but there are eight planned installments of the series, and it is an interactive drama, survival, horror video game. Um, so if you played Until Dawn, uh, this is from the same company, or the same studio, that made Until Dawn. Um, 
So you play in third-person perspective, controlling a variety of characters that have become trapped on board of a ghost ship. And the premise of the game is presented as an unfinished story by um, a character known as the curator, and you are tasked to complete that story. The story centers around five individuals on an underwater diving expedition to find a submerged World War II plane wreck in the South Pacific Ocean. Mm. Uh, the expedition okay. quickly takes a turn when the five are taken hostage by pirates, and against their will, they're taken to a large ghost ship, the fabled Indonesian Orang Madan, where the nightmare becomes a reality. Um, now, throughout the whole game, you're like, on this ghost ship, it's all wrecked. This ship is floating, though. This ship is not sunk. Right. It's not on fire. It's Exploded. Just, yeah. It's just floating mm -hmm. in the middle of the ocean. Um, and the pirates take you there because they're looking for something called Manchurian gold, which... Again, Manchuria is a region in Northeast Asia, but I do find it a little interesting that they call it Manchurian gold um, when you think about what they called the subjects at Unit 731. Granted, I don't know if that's yes. where they got the name from it, because again, Manchuria is a region in Northeast Asia, so it's not all bad, but I do find it interesting right. that that's the name that they used. Um, it could be a gentle nod to it. Right. It could be a gentle nod to it. Um, so the pirates are looking for Manchurian gold. They take you upon this ghost ship and all hell breaks loose because as you're like, this is a horror game. So you're going through the ghost ship. You're seeing fucked up things, uh, ghosts, uh, dead people. I mean, like the, the, the game also has like a little like pre-law or pre-log. That's, that's, yeah, that's the word, Zoe. Um, like a prologue where, like, you're, you're, um, you're part of this crew, you're stopped at a port, um, you get, like, a bad fortune, you go on board, you start to see stuff, um, and then you die from, like, a little Ooh. ghost boy. And so, like, when, that was, like, years before, so when you're the, these characters on the ghost ship in the game, you're seeing all the dead bodies mm -hmm. of the crew that was on the ship. Um... And also, you're, like, seeing creepy zombie people and, like, ghost people and all that stuff. So, it's it's a horror game. Um, however, yep. you learn and you eventually discover that the Manchurian gold on the ship is not gold at all. It is an extremely hazardous bioweapon. And the backstory that they use in the game is that in the aftermath of World War II, the Manchurian gold chemical was developed in China by the U.S. military as a potential weapon Ooh. for use against enemy forces in conflicts that could arise in the future. Uh, created at a secret facility disguised as a water treatment plant, the substance was seen to induce intense paranoia and hallucinations from those exposed to it through numerous tests on human subjects, often causing them to see wow. other people as monsters or some other supernatural being. The intent for the Manchurian Ooh, what, a twist. what a twist! Uh, the intent for <laughs> Manchurian gold was to deploy it in dense enemy territories, most likely trenches or bunkhouses, to cause the opposing infantry mm -hmm. to effectively be scared into killing each other 
and then you kind of like solve your own problem. However, the chemical was known to be extremely unstable and thus it killed everyone on the boat and or made everyone on the boat kill each other uh, because they were all hallucinating. Um, So I feel like they changed like the backstory of of what happens in the game, um, both for just like not to directly reference history, but also I think it was, I, I would like to think that it's a bit out of respect. There's some nods, like the facility being disguised as something else. Um, mm-hmm. but they don't, they don't, they don't talk about the atrocities of Unit 731. They don't reference any of that. They say that it was developed in China, not Japan. They say that it was developed by the U.S. Um, and that, uh, it just causes, like, intense paranoia and hallucinations. Uh, I didn't see anything about, even though it's tested on human subjects, there's nothing in the game that says that, like, it caused death to the human subjects. So, like, they left that right. out. You know, like, they didn't right. put that in there as, like, a horrific thing. Um, They're leaving so, enough holes that it, it doesn't, um, it doesn't feel like it's an attack, but it also doesn't, it's not, it's not providing all the information, but it's providing enough for a good story. Right. And it, they're not, like, glamorizing what, right. like, how this came to be. Um, which is a good thing. Um, so throughout the, yeah, so throughout the whole, um, throughout the whole game, obviously, like, you're, you're hallucinating both, like, people and also, like, rooms, and, um, it's not just, like, regular people, like, you're also hallucinating these, like, crazy, like, messed up demon monster things, um, like, zombie-esque things. Uh, but what I think is really interesting, though, is that, like, I feel, even though it's not stated anywhere in, like, the Man of Madan's, like, Wikipedia or any of their, like, forums or anything, I think it was heavily inspired by, like, the 2002 movie Ghost Ship, which... Oh, yeah. Like, I feel like it was heavily inspired by that, because, like, in the movie Ghost Ship, if you haven't seen it, um, Ghost Ship doesn't have any, like, chemical reaction or anything it's literally like spoilers it's demonic like it's it's way Mm -hmm. way supernatural um but in the movie they do these elements where the people that are on board of the ghost ship like walk into a room and all of a sudden the room is like in perfect condition and you're like seeing what the room looked like however many years ago um or you're running into a ghost and the ghost looks perfectly fine and not like it's dead like it just is a ghost of like a normal looking person um and in man of madan they do that um they do those same elements where like you walk into a ballroom and the ballroom looks totally fine and you walk in and that's what kind of where you discover the manchurian gold and then when you walk out like it's absolutely like shredded and tattered and destroyed and how it should look like the rest of the boat um, but for that brief right. moment, you're seeing the ballroom as if it was in perfect condition. Um, it also happens with a That's character in the game called Glamour Girl, or um, mm-hmm. she's like, uh, I don't know. That's just the name that's given to her. She's like a like a little like sea lady. Um, she looks totally normal, like. Um, 
one of the guys like hallucinates her after seeing her in a poster and she looks like a pinup model um but then she like turns and like gets all like zombified and like scary and crazy because it's a horror game and like um right but like that also is like a very like ghost ship thing to do where like I think yep. in Ghost Ship, there's, like, a lady who look or, like, the singer looks totally normal, and then all of a sudden she's, like, this old, like, lady, and she's, like, horrific looking and, like, trying to kill you. So, I feel like, even though yep. it doesn't explicitly say that there are references to Ghost Ship, I personally, having seen Ghost Ship and having played Man of Madon, I think there's some ties there, for sure, in terms of visuals and how you portray the hallucinations yep. and the, like, jump scare moments. Um, I would say I would say the, the creative elements are definitely very similar. As someone who has also seen that movie, and I believe I watched you play Man of Madame because I don't have I don't have a PlayStation, so yeah, <laughs> fair. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I thought it was really cool though to find like uh, typically like the games that we've talked about in the past have taken like tidbits from like moments in time mm-hmm. in history and like have used them. Or they've taken, like, a, a, an urban legend and kind of taken, like, some of the nuances of that urban legend. But this video game, like, almost takes it to a T. Like, the whole story yep. of the Orangmadon. Um, and it really, like, does change it a little bit. And I think that's to be respectful of its historical background. Um, but it also, like, takes a lot of, like, it's literally called that ship. It's literally carrying a bio chemical which is like the top conspiracy theory of the ghost ship um also Mm -hmm. the people on board in the game are also in like horrific poses um and look scared and they all died being scared like it, it really does directly tie to the the story um and so it just it was it it, it's cool to see that like direct application it's sad because of what happened and, and and the fact that we don't really know if it happened that's another thing is that this is a big mystery right um we do know that unit 731 existed we have no idea if the ship yes. um if if the ship existed if any of this really happened to that dutch crew if they were carrying a, a bioweapon i mean we it's 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 one big mystery but that's the story of the ss orang madan oh my goodness that was a really good story good job that was awesome we have quite uh the tie we have quite the similar tie-in uh when it comes to both how games are portraying actual events um, so my mine is actually going to be very complementary of yours. Oh, um, cool. When it when it comes to that of of they they took certain pieces, but they also left it uh, again very respectful and sort of turned it into its own um, into its own story and its own uh, creation. So um, really really good job. I I uh, I'm I'm very proud of the topics that we tend to talk about in this. If I can just if I can just give ourselves a, a pat on the back. <laughs> Um, you know, it's it's we're we're talking about a lot of really bad shit that happens either in someone's life or a town's life or a family's life. But once it gets to like a global perspective, um, it's 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 kind of um, crazy to see how interconnected pop culture is, both uh, from a global narrative 
but also how that affects each person. And I think it's really cool um, that that we kind of have these spaces where we can talk about this. And I think it's also really cool that we have communities such as gaming communities, such as movies, such as comics, such as whatever, that really want to explore these type of topics, even if it's not DC. Because right. anybody can make a Fortnite game, but not but not everybody can make a Man of Medan game. So yeah, absolutely. I think it's I think it's I think it's really cool that we that we take the time um, to to make poignant games, even if they are just games. Yeah. Um, so. Well, and I I would like to also like commend Supermassive just because I think they do a really good job of taking urban legends or historical occurrences that are not great um and Mm -hmm. or or scary you know and they they kind of transform them into these narratives that are both entertaining but still respectful um when you like look into it like again they're not like glorifying anything um they're making it a really compelling horror narrative and they're using history right. to back up those narratives. But they do it in like a, a really cool way that you're like both like learning something about history, but also like um, if you don't want to learn about the historical significance, like you can just play the game and enjoy the game um, and not be like it too bogged down. Yeah, it opens the door. Because they did that with Until Dawn with all of the um, yeah. Native American legends and... Um, the windigos and but also like the tie to nature with like animals and why we should be respectful to animals and and all that stuff so i think they do a really good job of that um but i also like that we can talk about these topics in in this space this way um and kind of like relate it to like today's relevant topics mm-hmm and it's not, and it, it sort of also debunks that that um, that stigma that that comes around video games, where it's all just you know vapid, self service, time sink that you know some people still perceive video games as that. Obviously, that's lessening now because uh, people are seeing the money that can be made with it. But um, I think that there is just a certain level of um, you know uh, uh, human experience that can be within video games, that can be within television shows, that can be within movies, um, that I think helps us not only experience that in order to understand it, but also um, to process it. You know, it's it's one thing to, I'm sure when you were reading all about that, uh, all, all about, um, you, uh, was it Unit 7, 713? 731. Did I say that right? 731, other way. 731, um, you know, I had I had known about about Japanese government experimentation, but I, you know, did not know that there was a specific uh, piece to it. I, I had known high level about that, but, you know, now I'm also piqued and want to read about sad things that make me sad. But um, I think that that's really, uh, I think it's just cool that we can just do that and and do that. Yay! Gamers Yay. and game developers and, and adults talking about important shit. So... <laughs> Important topics. Yes. Well, now I'm excited to hear yours. Yes. Uh, So uh, to kind of piggyback off of um, a a unsolved and or mysterious event uh, that was created into a game, um, I'm actually going to talk about the uh, Dyatlov uh, Pass incident 
which actually influenced the game Prologue. Um, so this happened back in the 1950s. Um, so this is back when uh, Russia was part of the USSR. Um, this is in 1959, so it's quite quite past uh, Cold or it's quite past World War II, definitely in World War or Cold War era. Um, so technology's changing and uh, landscapes are changing. Um, but there is there um, with my story, there are. Um, we're going to talk about the incident itself, and then we're going to talk through some of the conspiracy theories that came out of it. And then actually what happened is there was a, a recent rekindling of the investigation in this. So actually a lot of my sources that I had were published before the new inquiry was underway. Um, so the new inquiry started in 2015 and actually ended last year. So um, while there are a number of conspiracy theories and while there are a number of really cool things that we can talk about um, with this instance, I will say that according to the Russian government, this incident is solved now. Oh. So it was a formally, it was a formally mysterious and uh, unsolved mystery, but they themselves have now come to the conclusion that it is solved. Uh, I don't know if the masses agree. Um, cause there are, uh, some pretty significant, um, speculations and, and items that we could definitely talk through. Um, but I will preface, uh, that, and, and this is something I found just revisiting this, uh, case since we last talked about it. So this, the, the report came out in like November. Oh my God. Very, very new. This is very um, new. In terms of, in terms of, yes. So in terms of them actually confirming like, Hey, we're done. Stop talking about this shit. That's very new. So, um, because believe me, believe me when I say this is this was the bane of the Russia of the USSR um, and media like frenzy in the 1960s for a, for a, quite a while. Mm. Um, this happened in 1959, and the 1960s were just full of just full on panic, and there was there was a lot that happened. So, all right, let's go ahead and uh, dive right into um, the Dyatlov Pass incident itself. Uh, so just to set the scene, um, this is back in 1959. This is back in uh, January of 1959. Uh, funnily enough, the expedition actually started on January 25th of 1959. So it actually happened 61 years ago today, the day that we're recording this. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> yeah. So another happenstance that happened when I redid my notes. So um, a group of experienced skiers decided to take an expedition uh, to the then Soviet Union or in the then Soviet Union near the Ural Mountains. Um, they consisted of teachers and students uh, from the Ural uh, Polytechnical Institute, now known as the Ural Federal University. Um, this university offered classes and certification to become uh, an experienced uh, climber, hiker, and skier. Um, so this was actually uh, the, the this expedition was actually a test for them to upgrade from grade two, which is, I would say, moderate to advanced, to grade three, which is advanced and expert, if you want to think about it that way. Okay. So that's what this uh, this, this training exper ex uh, exercise and this expedition was meant to be um, their their uh, test and in order to make sure that they actually graduate with, with their stuff. Um, the team uh, was uh, primarily was consisted of eight men and two women. Um, all of them were between the ages of 20 and 24, so they're college students, and there was an experienced post-bac graduate uh, who was about 38 years old. 
Um, I will read their first name as best uh, as best I can. That that was kind of the easier part instead of just tripping over their name, their full names as a whole. Um, so I will be referring to them uh, as as their full names. There are two Yuris, um, but luckily uh, one of them uh, is not part of the end story. So I, I will make sure okay. that I I uh, disseminate that a little clearly. Um, so uh, back in January 25th of 1959, the team assembled in Ivsel, a town in Sverdlovsk Oblast, um, which is uh, a mountainous region over in Russia. I have I have literally the phonetic spelling and saying like next to each one of these words. So you yeah. Don't screw this up. You put this weird thing later. Don't screw this up. You'll be fine. So if I do screw it up, I'm sorry. I tried. Um. So they uh, went by train to this town. Uh, they set up all of their all of their packs. Uh, the sports uh, club that uh, also works with all different hikers throughout the entire region uh, made sure that they were all packed. They took pictures. Um, the the group itself uh, had uh, had photo cameras um, as well as uh, group journals and individual journals. And then also um, they were they were completely outfitted to the nines. They had skis, snowshoes, uh, packs. Multiple tents, uh, multiple cooking, uh, multiple cookware items. Um, so they they were not uh, they were not underprepared. The, these were very experienced people. These were very experienced hikers, um, which is why it's uh, very strange that this happened. So uh, as they were making uh, as they were making progress on uh, January thirty first, uh, one member actually had to turn back uh, while they were going through the hike. Uh, his name was Yuri Yudin. Um, he had the easier of the last names. Um, and, uh, while, uh, he had to turn back, uh, unfortunately, uh, at a very young age of age 21, he was actually starting to suffer from heart disease and he was actually starting to suffer, um, from, from some, some physical troubles. So it was actually better for him to just turn back. Um, and he was, uh, unfortunately also the last to see any of the nine other party members alive. My God. Uh, so as he returned to, um, to, um, yeah. So as he returned to Ivdel, um, the group uh, continued to venture into the Ural mountain, uh, Mountains, and they were approaching their target, and I shit you not, the name of this target is Dead Mountain. Well, that's, um... I shit you not. That's, uh... Yep. Uh, <laughs> it is... I feel like ominous? that should tell you not to do that. <laughs> I feel like that should be the first sign. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. So, the name in Russian is a transliteration of another language and is called Kolat Cycle. Kolat ah. uh, Cycle. This is where the name of the game Kolat is coming from. My guess is either Kolat means mountain or it means dead. Um, so, I hope and, it means uh, mountain. Unfortunately, this is also where the teams... <laughs> right? That would make it a little less ominous. Um, and unfortunately, this is also the team's final resting place. And I will go into how we we get to this part because the real uh, the real juicy parts are unfortunately with the investigation because we don't actually know what happened and that's why it's left to a lot of speculation and why there has to be multiple multiple investigations over the past sixty one years. By January thirty first, um, uh, after Yuri had turned back, they had reached the basin of the mountain and set up a camp near a wooded valley. They left a cache of their belongings uh, for their for their trip back and marked the spot accordingly this is also how uh they do this because this is also how the um the rescue party was able to find them later on 
on February 1st, and this is all according to the journals that they have. So anytime I'm saying dates and anytime I'm saying information about the team uh, to what we actually understand, this is because they had recorded data. Uh, they were, because this was a, a this was a examination, they had to keep a very, very good documentation, uh, both of their mood, but also their supplies and also of their team health as a whole. Um, so th this, was, this was a test, so they, they had to keep um, good notes. logs of everything. So, I'm, yes, lots of notes, just like our podcast notes. <laughs> um, on February 1st, <laughs> they started moving up the regular mountain pass, uh, the mountain pass, but due to weather conditions, uh, there was an extreme snowstorm and wind during the time. They, uh, they, they unfortunately deviated from the original pass that they were headed to and headed more west. This in turn started taking the nine hikers up the mountain instead through a more treacherous path that made it more difficult for them to go. Once they realized their mishap, the group turned around and headed down towards uh, the slope of the mountain to gain some shelter from the worsening conditions. However, I will take a note that due to the really bad conditions, they made a decision that is not a good decision. Um, even though they had a very professional tent, they had a very professional setup, they made sure everything was safe, um, they bunked down in the snow, they, the, the snow, they dug everything out, they had a perfect tent form and everything, they were still not in a wooded area, uh, they still had a very minimal shelter from, uh, from, uh, from the uh, elements, um, and, and some investigators would later say that they made a bad decision camping where they could, um, but to those initial investigators, I also say, screw you, because you weren't there when it was happening, and you didn't know the, the potential type of situation that they were in, and I'm sure they were trying to make the best of the situation that they were in. Right. So, there's, there's a lot of back and forth and a lot of the reading that I have where the investigators were like, they shouldn't have been there in the first place. And it's like, well, they were, so how about you just find out what happened to them and stop criticizing for them for something that couldn't help. So, be useful. Right. Well, also because like yeah. nature is is inherently unpredictable, so you know I'm inherent, sure. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure like even the even the best most skilled people can get into a situation where they don't have the best solution, but they try to make the best out of what exactly. they do have. So I mean, yeah, it doesn't. I agree. Like you shouldn't be like criticizing. Yeah. what they did they and the didn't do. the best situation that they could do. Right. Exactly. So, um, this date, uh, February 1st, um, is also when the records of the group journal stopped, and no one would receive word from them, um, uh, no one would then, in the foreseeable future, would receive any words from them. On February 12th, which is 11 days after um, the group uh, was on the mountain, after no telegram was received by the team leader, the sports club, um, the sports club got a little concerned, and they started talking to, amongst themselves and being like, hey, should we probably do something about this? And they said, you know, well, the conditions were pretty crappy. Maybe they're, they're, just, they're, they're just, you know, taking their time. They're coming back. Um, everything should be fine. They have enough supplies to make it that long. That's what they said. Uh, however, further down this awful timeline, family members finally approached the sports club and the university demanding to do something to get in contact to find their family members because by this time that the family was getting involved, it was 19 days after the expedition team had not gotten in contact with anyone. Oh. This was on February 20th of 1959. Oh my god. Yep. So the 
So the sports club received no communications and then proceeded to not take any action and then proceeded to wait until the families were pushing them to actually get something done. Well, how long was the expedition supposed to be? So they were supposed to hear, so the, um, uh, so Igor, uh, who was the team leader, said, I will check in at this town. I don't remember the name of the town. I can find it. But um, uh, they were going to check in to a town that they were going to have after they went through the pass and after they, they traversed their selected time. And they said, if you don't, if basically, if you don't hear from me in 10 days, you should contact someone. I'm going to send you a telegram. It went oh. past those 10 days, and the sports club still didn't do anything. Oh. So they should have done something because Igor basically said it should take us X amount of time to get there. If it does take us, it might take us a little longer. Don't worry about us. But if you hear, if you don't hear from us 10 days after the exped- after the expedition date, you need to contact us. Like you, you need to find us something went wrong. Right. Um, so that, that's how they prefaced it. But it should have been a week long trip essentially what they what they went with and then 10 days at most given conditions or given them you know having to speed up or speed down or do whatever okay so, so like 19 days day. yeah 19 days is like way way too long yes uh which is why the family was very angry and was also very concerned um so the rescue the rescue operations did not start until the 26th which is now 25 days after the oh hikers God. have gone missing and not communicated with anyone um, the searchers were able to find their initial cache, um, even though it was covered uh, primarily in snow, the markers were uh, still a really good indication for where they were going. They followed the map that Igor had set, uh, the team lead, and uh, they were able to follow them through. They realized that they were not the, in, in any, the, the rescue team realized as they were going up that they that the group definitely got sidetracked because they did not see any further markings on the path that they should have gone. So they started traveling more west in order to try to find them, and that's when they finally came across um, the uh, abandoned and badly damaged tent uh, that was the campsite on Colai, uh, on, on the Colai Mount, Mountain itself. Um, they did make they did make a note that it was set up uh, professionally um, and well, and then in other references, specifically in 2015 and the 2019 report. They later on said um, that it was set up in an unconventional way. So we're already starting to have some deviations of, of belief in the hikers, which is also causing a lot of tension between, yep, I looked at your face, between the current uh, investigation versus the 1959 investigation. I'm squinting so, for um, anyone who can't see my face. I- <laughs> Much, I'm much sus. sus uh, much sus in her face. I'm yes, sus. Very sus. Um, <laughs> the campsite baffled the search party. Um, a volunteer a search party member said the tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty, and all the group's belongings, including shoes, have been left behind. Investigators also concluded by markings on the tent uh, and the way that it collapsed that the tent had been cut open from the inside. Further search in the area found all nine sets of footprints left by people who were wearing only socks or maybe a single shoe or were even barefoot, uh, and they followed them through 500, uh, 500 um, meters from the tent. They were able to follow them, and then it got a little uh, shaky, so they really had to start breaking off in there. But as they were um, watching most of the footprints, they made a comment that the tracks um, that the tracks were bunched up and then started breaking off into smaller groups. 
and also the strides were very wide and the footing was sloppy. Uh, their conclusion at that time was it appeared that uh, the footprints looked panicked and like each member, no matter how senior or their sex, was running as fast as they could away from the tent. No one stopped to pick up belongings, their shoes, their skis, their coats, food, uh, torches, um, flashlights, and even uh, part and even their pants were all left at the campsite. Um, so it wasn't a great scene when they initially came across that. Um, additionally, these were the only tracks found at the site besides the fresh ones made by the investigators. The slightly snow-covered depressions became harder to decipher as the group of people became uh, smaller and smaller and became further away from the camp. So the investigative team uh, split up and walked alongside each track in order to see uh, as best as they could where each one went. Uh, unfortunately, as each group split up, they did eventually come across the bodies of the hikers. As the, at the forest edge, um, which was down, further down the slope into the sloped mountain, uh, under a, a large Siberian pine, the searchers found visible remains of a small fire. There were also the two first bodies of Gregory and Yuri, this is a different Yuri, they were shoeless and dressed only in their underwear. The branches of the nearby tree were broken up up to five meters high, suggesting that one of the skiers or both had tried to climb up to look for something or perhaps to run away from something. Um, another team to the west of the trees found three more corpses, um, Igor, uh, Zineda, and Rustem. Uh, who seemed to all have died in poses uh, struggling coming back to the tent. Uh, so they likely died from exposure. Um, it would take over two more months after the thaw and receding snow uh, uncovered the other four bodies. So at this time, they were uh, in, in May of, of 1959, they were able to recover all nine bodies of the hikers. But initially, they were only uh, able to recover, um, they were only able to recover five. Uh, and this is where the questions really started uh, to, to kick in. Uh, these four bodies were dressed better than the others, and this included Nikolai, Semyon, Alexander, and uh, Ludmila. The inquest concluded that they were going to investigate all the causes of death and help the families come to a conclusion as best as they could. So let's talk about what each was, or what was discovered on each of the bodies, because this could probably get a little convoluted. But the main thing I want to talk about is the four bodies that were found in May. Three of the ski hikers from this group actually died from fatal injuries. Nikolai had major skull damage. Both Ludmila, Ludmila and uh, Semyon uh, had major chest fractures. According to the medical examiner, all of the bodies, uh, all of the bodies were examined by the same uh, gentleman, uh, his name's Boris. Um, the force required to cause such damage would have been extremely high and uh, comparable to the force of a car crash. Mysteriously, the bodies had no external wounds associated with the bone fractures that were in their bodies, um, as if they had been subjected to a high level of pressure and not actual physical trauma. Yep, that's a good space. Um, <laughs> what the fuck? So like, so like you said in, in your story where there were bodies that were seemingly, that were seemingly um, injured and obviously in some form of trauma, but there was no physical, there was no physical trauma associated to um, the actual injuries that did in fact kill them. Yeah. Um, so, 
all four of these bodies were found uh were found significantly under the snow so there was a very large snow bank that they were under and at the bottom of it was also a creek which is where um as the snow thawed uh and as they moved down they were actually uh put closer toward, towards the creek um and so by the time may came around they were actually either either partially in the water or they were next to the water itself uh when the initial reports hit the press um everybody claimed everybody clung to the fact that uh these uh teambers uh the four of them that had uh I, i'm sorry the out of these four um they uh had um eyes missing and their tongues missing as well as parts of their face now this is the part where i'm going to get ahead of the conspiracy theories Boris stipulated that the damage to the soft tissue um, caused these things to happen specifically um, they were exposed for so long in the wilderness and also near water so that highly uh, that highly increased both uh, decomposition and putrefaction but also um, uh, also made it easier for animals to find them and also made it easier um, just in terms of the moisture for certain soft tissue to, to decompose faster than it would be if they were still frozen in um, in uh, the wilderness. So, for example, uh, Ludmia was missing her tongue, eyes, and parts of her lips, um, as well as some of the facial tissue uh, that was uh, that was um, near. Um, or I'm sorry, she got the chest tissue. So that was the other guy. I missed that. I said that the right thing. Uh, Semyon had his eyeballs missing. Alexander had his eyebrows missing. Um, so, but the press heard this and went absolutely apeshit all over it. And that's when uh, there were a lot of theories that were coming out that they were attacked by something. Um, which I will go into once we once we get through some of the more of the findings. So um, Boris was the forensic expert uh, performing all the postmortem examinations through all of the nine party members, um, and uh, it was his expert opinion that the injuries happened postmortem due to due to the locations of the bodies and how they thawed um, through the warmer months. Uh, however, the sensationalism of the findings made enough people speculate that there had to be an explanation for all of these mishaps um, of a very well-trained group of hikers to die in such an exposed way. Um, to make matters worse, when the army got there, uh, during the rescue party itself, there were commentators who told newspapers um, that uh, they had seen the army uh, members with Geiger counters and the medical examiners also tested parts of the clothing left behind from the hikers, and one victim's set of clothing was radioactive, showing far higher than normal readings. Um, these, were, uh, these were the pants that were still sitting at the hikers' camp. These were not pants or, or shirts that were on any of the hikers in the wilderness where they died. Um, so a lot of theories started popping up at this point, and shit got real weird. Well, because so, there's radioactive um, pants. Yes. So <laughs> there, there are, there are some, yeah, there, there are some, uh, some good pieces. So let me, let me just quickly review uh, some of the facts of the case so far before we get into some of the explanations. So it was concluded after the medical examinations that six of the group members died of hypothermia and exposure, and three of them died from fatal injuries. There were no indications uh, of other people nearby Colot apart from the nine travelers themselves. The tent had been ripped open from the inside. The victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal, which was on February 1st. 
Traces from the camp showed that all group members left the campsite of their own accord and on foot. High levels of radiation were found on only one victim's clothing. To dispel the theory that an attack uh, by the indigenous Nancy people um, or a Yeti, because yes, the Yeti made a showcasing in all these cases and all of these news stories, <laughs> a freaking Yeti. Um, the uh, Boris stated that the fatal injuries of the three bodies could not have been caused by another human being because of the force of blows that had been too strong, so no soft, soft tissue had been damaged. So something happened to them where it was such a strong pressure that it caused no physical ailments, no damage to, to the soft tissue, but caused internal injuries only. Um, released documents contained no information about the condition of the uh, skier's internal organs among any of them. So all nine members had zero reports of the conditions of their internal organs, but they did state the conditions um, that either there was a skull fracture, a chest fracture, um, or something that caused that, but they didn't go into any further detail. Did it puncture a lung? Did it rupture their heart? Did it you know, did one of them go septic? They didn't They didn't go into any further information about that, which everyone thought was really, really weird. That is weird. Um, and uh, much, to, much, to, not much to people's speculation, there were absolutely no survivors of the incident. There were other speculations that there were survivors. There were other speculations that the Yuri that was there was actually the Yuri that went home, question mark, question mark, and he was actually there. He didn't leave when he said that he left. There are no survivors. He was not there. It's physically impossible. Cool. Great. <laughs> awesome. Now we get into the fun shit. Now we get into the fun shit. So, obviously, um, it was very surprising that uh, this group, uh, I think the main thing that the press really latched onto was not only the family's reaction because of the lack of reaction from most of um, the sports club and the government and the university, um, but also there there were quite a number of stirrings happening in in uh, in Russia at this time uh, that may have fueled uh, some of these conspiracy conspiracy theories um, to be uh, more geared towards the government did something wrong. Um, so so there, there were a lot of talks um, that were happening, which I also find it funny with this most recent report because the government, the Russian government uh, now is just like, we're done. We're not bringing this up again. We're not talking about it again. We're done. Right. So, um, so the fact that this has this has gone this way is, is super interesting. So, um, all right. Now I can start. I think I'm going to start with the outlandish ones, and then we're going to land on the. Um, I think I didn't. I think we're going to land on the the final final reading itself. Yeah. Start um, with the yeti. So. <laughs> I, actually, that is the number one the, of the most out. Yes. So as 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 I obviously recent as I just said, Boris had to fight tooth and nail with the press to tell them that it wasn't a fucking yeti. Because he's like, listen, yeti, and he he even entertained them. It was like, listen, yetis have claws, yetis have teeth. They didn't look like they got eaten. It didn't look like they got slashed. They weren't thrown up against a tree. You know, nothing, nothing physical in terms of physical trauma harm happened to these people, but something happened to them to cause them to die. So, and that, that was actually really hard for a lot of people to really, um, to really understand, which is why people were like, you're making this up. This doesn't make sense. However, I will get into other theories as to how that does make sense. 
So, and it was not the Mansi people. Um, the Mansi people were were uh, local tribesmen that were in the area. Um, they were uh, often uh, they're like they were like gypsies, where if something bad happened, they were just often to blame, and there was just no substantiated anything for that. It's the same with any um, indigenous people, where they're just they had to have been them. There's no way one of our people could do something wrong. So people just really grasped to that and said it must have been them, um, which is not true. So uh, we're going to get into the fun man-made trauma conspiracy theories first. Uh, speculation exists that the campsite fell within the path of Soviet parachute mines. If you don't know what parachute mines are, these are uh, mines and bombs that uh, are similar to grenades that explode in the air in order to not show impact on the ground. So it's, it's a tactical explosion um, and, and a tactical bombardment to, to cause uh, either concussive damage or death uh, through explosions that are very, very close to the air. Um, there are, excuse me, there are um, indeed records of parachute mines being tested near Dead Mountain. There, that, that is actually true. That, that is actually something that has been um, supported uh, by documentation uh, leaked in the 1980s um about uh about uh, operations that were happening in the 1950s and 1960s around the Ural Mountains itself when it came to military testing. Um so this also this theory also coincides with reported sightings and photographs that were apparently taken. Um I still haven't found these photographs. I haven't found copies of them online, so I don't I don't know how the, how well this is supported. But um, there is a theory that coincides with reported sightings of glowing orange orbs floating or falling from the sky within the general vicinity of the hikers, and allegedly uh, there are photographs of them. Um, it is kind of unclear whether or not these photographs happened the night the hikers were out there, or if this just happened on a regular occurrence, like with UFO sightings in Arizona, where... Um, it just happened so frequently that people would just post up and start taking pictures. So that part's kind of unclear when it comes to we have evidence, um, but and I'm using quotations uh, for that. So, um, but this is one reason why the hikers, some hikers had experienced heavy internal damage with comparably less external trauma. Um, so this was one explanation for why it is happening and it was happening in that area um, during that time. Um, so, uh, and then, and then everybody sort of agrees um, that the the um, that the injuries to their facial tissue and the fact that um, you know eyeballs and stuff were missing that's obviously either from scavengers um, or those were uh, manipulated um, or yeah or sorry hang on I'm reading ahead too far um, yes uh, that the the bodies were unnaturally manipulated most likely due to scavenging animals uh, most people have come around to that agreement. Uh, there are people who do uh, believe that burns to the hair and skin um, and also an anecdote from a funeral goer who went to six out of the nine funerals stated that the skin of the hikers was an abnormal color, almost tinged orange or dark brown. Um, so, mm -hmm. so a lot of people think that this could be a process of the mummification that happened. But the weird thing is it happened to the bodies that were frozen and it happened to the bodies that were thawed. So it's something that happened equally among 
bodies that were found in different states at different times. So they found that to be really weird. Um, honestly, it could be anything. It could be the embalming process that they did um, for the bodies. It could be medical examiner techniques. You know, it, it could really honestly be anything. But that was one thing that, especially when it comes to um, the radiation and when it comes to um, the potential use of radiological weapons in the same area, which is the second man-made uh, conspiracy theory, um, since there was the discovery of radioactivity on the site, they think that also the people could have been exposed. Um, and then, obviously, the cons against that are all of their equipment should have been exposed then, not just one person's um, pants, uh, not just one person's pants and t-shirt. So they found that to be, you know, kind of inconsistent, but they were like, the government, they can do whatever they want, and that's whatever. So people really, really latched onto that one. Um, but I did find the the body color to be really, really strange, and that one's not fully explained in any of these theories, actually, um, huh. besides potentially being radioactive. Mm -hmm. And that's also an important thing to note when we get to talking about the game. Because uh, I thought that was a really, once I read this, I thought that was a really cool aspect that they had in the game to tie it all through. So, okay. I have two other theories uh, before this, before the actual finding. Uh, and both of these are absolutely terrifying and have to do with winds. And it makes me very gracious that I don't live in a mountainous area. Yeah. These two theories have to do with wind killing people. So, Ooh. yeah. Fuck my life. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So, infrasound, infrasound is a low-frequency sound wave um, that can happen in uh, what is called a carbon vortex. Um, the carbon vortex is, is such a high concentration of wind that it causes an infrasound capable of inducing panic attacks in humans. Um, this was this was released as a theory due to other incidences and tying together um, different hiker stories of people legitimately losing it while hiking in high places where the pressure changes or there are severe winds. Um, uh, Iker claims, which is Johnny Iker, who is the author of this book uh, that was released in 2013 called Dead Mountain, claims that because of their panic, the, hi the hikers were driven to leave the tent by whatever means necessary. Uh, so all nine of them were affected at once. Um, they would uh, have, uh, or they would uh, flee down the, down the slope completely unprepared. And by the time they were further down the hill and away from the infrared's path, they would have regained their composure, but in the darkness would have been unable to return to their shelter. Um, and then uh, everybody was like, that's a really crazy theory, but also that doesn't explain the people who suffered from deaths that were caused by those pressure um, internal injuries. And he said, well, those injuries could have been suffered um, as a result of stumbling over the ledge of the ravine and landing on the rocks at the bottom. There are some speculations that falls may not cause enough external damage, but could cause enough internal damage to die. Um, this is, again, speculation. There's a lot of, there, there's not a lot of theory behind that. I still think you would have some actual external physical trauma, but, you know, I'm not the expert. I mean, fair. Like, so, you could, for sound. you could have, like, I could see, like, if you fell into, like, a snowbank, and, like, because the mm -hmm. impact of snow is pretty, like, if you hit, like, a whole pack of snow, like, really hard, 
Like you're I falling could, on concrete. Yeah, yeah I could. You're falling on concrete at that I point. could see. I could see like you having that kind of like damage. But you're right. Like I feel like it would have left at yeah. least like abrasions or like something on the skin because like something. tissue is so sensitive that I feel like it would have left something. Especially since they were so exposed. Yeah. Especially like, if they're they in so their exposed, underwear, like, on. yeah, I feel like, yeah, mm, yeah. Mm, mm, I, I see, I see. Yep. Yep. Um, so that was another theory that came out. Um, but there are cases of infrasound. There there are cases of, of sounds and low-frequency things making people go freaking insane. Cough, cough, cough. Uh, the radioactive satellite in, uh, in Outlast 2. Um, mm, so mm-hmm. there are so there there are some cases uh where or where there there's enough theory um maybe not enough practice behind low frequency shit messing with your brain um so the second one that is wind induced and is terrifying is the catabatic wind uh in a second theory based on nature being absolutely brutal uh some recent findings and recent as in 2019 um would uh like would uh like to attribute the deaths uh to the kinetic wind itself this is a technical name for drainage wind a wind that carries high density air from a higher elevation down a slope which is where they were that's where they were on the mountain they were on a slope uh under the force of gravity such winds are sometimes called fall winds um and uh kinetic winds can rush down elevated slopes at hurricane speeds that is 60 to 75 that is 60 to 75 75 miles miles per hour or faster Jesus. at minimum so at minimum that's anywhere between 60 to 75 miles per hour um in 2019 a swedish and russian expedition was at the site and after investigating into their surroundings and also looking at historical data um because they, they do have storm data dating back uh super far um that's something that i love about science is that it just especially weather is there there's there's a record for literally everything, and I, I adore it. Um, they did propose that a violent um, catabatic wind uh, is a likely explanation for the in- incident. Um, catabatic winds are somewhat rare events and can be extremely violent. They were implicated in the 1978 case at Anaris Mountain in Sweden, where eight hikers were killed and one was seriously injured in the aftermath of a catabatic wind. The topography of both Dead Mountain and the Anaris Mountain is very similar. Don't have a lot of trees. Don't have a lot of shelter. The slopes are almost at the exact same angles. There is a slight possibility, uh, and they're also uh, uh, hang on latitude latitude uh, on the map. They're in a very similar range um, in a in a global sense. Okay. Um, because Sweden's up here, Russia's up here. They're kind of in the same uh, hemisphere, part of the hemisphere. There we go. Um, so hemispheres, whatever. I'm speaking words I <laughs> exactly not even think of. It's fine. Um, correct me in my DMs. So uh, a sudden catabatic wind uh, would have made it impossible to remain in the tent, and the most rational course of action would be for the hikers to cover the tent with snow and seek shelter among the tree lines. Uh, this may have also been a panic, uh, and they may not have had time to uh, to possibly fortify themselves as best as they could because even though catabatic wind can happen in a very forceful manner, it also can be a very short amount of time. So the hikers could have assessed this and said that we need to wait until this blows over, and then unfortunately um, it didn't blow over fast enough, so they died from exposure, um, or um, they, that wasn't the case. One of the two. 
So um, there is evidence that there was a torch left behind on top of the tent, possibly left there intentionally so the hikers could find their way back to the tent once the wind subsided. This is unsubstantiated because there was nothing in the 1959 report um, saying that they had enough time to do just that. So people think that there's like a game of telephone happening where people are just kind of adding their to whatever evidence they think is pertinent to their theory. So this is when things get a little muddled again. Um, and then again, to explain um, what happened uh, to, um, to the people um, who did not die from hypothermia or exposure um, was that they made uh, nature-based emergency shelters that included the large stones that were found around the body, uh, one of which collapsed, leaving four of the hikers buried with nonviolent injuries observed. Again, it's kind of one of those, I mean, it could be possible, right. but with no, with no photographs of the bodies where they were, um, there, there's pictures of the bodies getting lifted out. The only picture um, of the bodies that's really there were the two that were underneath the tree. Those, those were the ones that were directly of the bodies where they were laying and were untouched. The other ones, uh, because of where they were, had to be pulled out uh, of the creek, and so they were moved before a bunch of pictures were taken. Gotcha. So, all right. So, here we are. Here we are. We are now officially out of conspiracy theory conjecture, and we are officially at the explanation that the Russian federal government is saying, this is how it happened. Please stop fucking talking to us. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yep. Um, so uh, the initial thing, and this is also something they brought up in 1959, uh, but the families, the university, and other hikers severely rebuked against it. They said it was an avalanche. This was the initial theory that the team ran away. Our team, uh, that the team ran away from the tent. Because of an impending avalanche, they lost their way in the storm. Uh, the storm force winds unfortunately died from exposure, unable to make it back to their tent or together as the full group. This is also the conclusion that the 2015-2019 open investigation uh, concluded, and that was done by the investigative committee of the Russian Federation. I will go into the details. The investigators confirmed that the weather on the night of the tragedy, reported tragedy, was very harsh. Uh, it was very harsh, and the winds uh, and the wind speeds were up to hurricane force, which was uh, up to 45 to 67 miles per hour. There was an active snowstorm, and the temperatures were reaching negative 40 degrees Celsius. That's been told. Really cold. Um, yes. Now, the reason why everybody rebuked the initial investigation about the avalanche is because they were taking into account the current weather when they were at the scene of the investigation, which was significantly more balmy, which had no storm, sandstorm, so, snowstorm whatsoever, and had barely any wind. So they're saying it couldn't have been a factor of the wind, and it couldn't have been um, a factor of the infrared sound, and it couldn't have been a factor of, of many of these things because those situations weren't there. Well, the current Russian government said, we're going to go through our data and we're going to cross-reference everything and we're going to find out exactly the type of temperature and exactly the conditions that were happening there based off of radio tower uh, communications, based off of military reports, and based off of um, just uh, um, 
newspapers in the day. So they, they took all of that data and they were able to uh, create a whole map and line out um, weather from, uh, I think it was January 27th, all the way through when the team was there, the research or the rescue team. So that was uh, like, that was a month, basically. Right. Essentially a month. Um, so they did all that. On February 1st, the group arrives at Colop Mountain and erects a large nine-person tent on an open slope without any natural barriers such as forests. Um, on that day and a few preceding days, a heavy snowfall had continued with strong wind and frost. So they're basically setting the scene. And this is where now, even though specialists were saying in 1959 they did, a, they did everything exactly right, we're saying in hindsight they did everything wrong. Because where they posted their tent and how they posted their tent was incorrect. So that that is the finding of the current investigation saying, no, we know this now. They didn't know that then. We know this now, that, that where they were on a mountain is very dangerous. Gotcha. So that's why there was so much backlash initially against the avalanche theory because people in 1959 thought exactly what they did was exactly perfectly fine according to their guides and according to their survival instincts and according to what had happened in the past. Um, so they thought they were fine, and this is why, looking at it with new lens, this is why the avalanche theory is quote-unquote coming to light as the truth. All right. The group, traversing through the slope and digging, in the, tent, uh, digging the tent into the snow uh, to we uh, weaken the snow base. During the night, the snowfield above the tent starts to slide down uh, slowly and under the weight of the new snow gradually starts pushing the fabric of the tent. They think that it could have in fact covered the entrance, which is why the group woke up in a panic and started trying to cut everything open to evacuate the tent before they were crushed. Oh. Um, yes, which I thought, uh, I don't dislike that idea. Um, so they do believe that the entrance was blocked based off of uh, the, the pictures that they have. However, because the winds were so strong over the course of the time before the rescue party got there, most of the snow that could have been piled on may have been removed by the wind. So there may have been, uh, the, it, the snow bank may have been higher, uh, the snow that actually covered the tent may have been higher, um, so there's not a whole lot of data that they, that they can just go off of, of being there 25 days later. So 25 to 30 days later, I should say. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, this is all purported and all substantiated by uh, the weather map that they created. So, um, so due to some of the members having very incomplete clothes, the group splits up. Two of the group, only in underwear and pajamas, uh, were found near the Siberian pine tree near the fire pit. They're now conjecturing that the tree branches were broken because they were trying to make a fire pit and trying to make a shelter. That's what they're now conjecturing, instead of someone trying to climb up it. Okay. Um, those were the two that did die from hypothermia. The three hikers, including Igor, which is the team lead, attempted to climb back to the tent, possibly to get sleeping bags or any other type of equipment. Um, they had better clothes on uh, than at the fire, than at the, uh, than at the, uh, the two that died um, from hypothermia underneath the tree, uh, but still had quite a bit lighter uh, footwear and didn't have any jackets, didn't, didn't have anything like that. They do believe that these three, uh, as they were trying to get back, the winds 
the the winds and the extreme cold weather unfortunately made them more exhausted than normal. Um, even if they are experienced hikers, and they did fall down into the snow and probably died from exhaustion, and then hypothermia, and then exposure. Uh, the remaining four, equipped with the warmest clothes and footwear, up out of all of the other hikers, these were the ones that were found in the stream. Um, they believe that they potentially lived a little bit longer than their other companions, um, and were able to build some type of camping place, but that was further destroyed by the by the embankment and the snow later on. Uh, the bodies were found only seventy meters from the fireplace. They didn't they didn't say that in the initial investigation. Mm. They didn't say that the bodies that were found underneath all of the snow were very close to where the other bodies bodies were found. That was in none that was in no other prior investigation material. So they do think the groups did meet up and they may have taken the clothing from the two that were that were now dead and then put them on themselves. It's unclear. Oh. They don't know. But they think that's why they're they think that's why they're better equipped and that they had better clothing on. Because they didn't go back to the tent, but they may have found the two that died earlier and then tried to survive off of the clothing from them. Because it was very weird that they literally had no clothing on them whatsoever. Right. They were in their underwear. Right. So they found that really weird. Like, at least when you're in a tent, you're probably in long johns at minimum. At minimum, you're probably in long johns. But also, um, if and it's one like, of the other things that, again, if it's like that cold, though, like, I mean, like, I understand you're in a mm-hmm. tent you're, and you're, you're sleeping. Die. Yeah. Right. Like, I understand you're in a tent and you're sleeping, but at, like, like, at, at, it's so cold. Like, I feel like you'd still have, like, more layers on than normal, you know? Like, yeah. so part of. So part of that was is that they they did have like a little stove thing going on in in the tent. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did have a ventilation system that was perfectly set up. They had all that going on. Um, and then also with nine bodies close together in an enclosed space, it's warmer than it would have been outside. Fair. So, so and part of it too is when you're hiking. Uh, this this is why a lot of people actually die from hypothermia. Is you're sweating, so you think I'm just gonna take this off for a little bit. And then you freeze with all of your sweat on, and then you put that back on, and you're you're just you're just obliterating your body's way to to temper reg, uh, regulate. So right, um, yeah. So um, they think that these bodies, while close to the other ones, may have used the other people's clothing. Um, and then they're they're saying uh, that the way that they were, uh, they may have been trying to climb back up to the tent, and where the four of them walked, there was a snow hole. Because, so they, they may have fallen down through places that had enough packed snow, so then they found that one spot near the ledge that made them fall all the way down. So they're thinking that they fell through a snow hole, and then just like you said, there could have been enough padding underneath them where the bodies um, did not have enough external injuries, um, but had very severe internal injuries. And then, uh, and then three of them died uh, almost instantaneously. From where they fell, and then the other person died while trying to help them from the hypothermia. That's mm. their that's their story for sure. So, um, they uh, basically base uh, a lot of their stuff on science. This is this is what they're saying, and they're also saying the negligence of the 1959 investigators contributed to the report creating more questions than answers and inspiring numerous conspiracy theories. So really, they're being kind of mean, <laughs> and I don't think. I don't think it's completely fair 
um, for an investigative team in 2020 and 2019 to call a bunch of 1959 investigators idiots because there has been a lot of advancement. We see this in criminal cases where, you know, you see people be awful or do something stupid. We saw it with the Martha Moxie case that I talked about last or last uh, episode where, you know, they, they just did stuff that was really stupid that we may not have known was, was a good way of catching evidence. It's hard to call them idiotic. And it, it's hard to say that they were that the the reason why this wasn't solved is because they were wrong, right? When that's not entirely true. There are there are a lot of questions still. Well, also they found there, they know, found the bodies. There... They found the bodies like, yep, so long after the event. You know, like I feel like the evidence would mm-hmm. have been significantly different if they had found them like day. 13 instead of day 25 like it it would have been like a significantly different like um environment to find them in exactly exactly so that's a very good point so um so and um there was and there was a lot of media pressure at the time and the families weren't very cooperative they were angry uh as they should have been um so you know, there. I, I think that there are some really great. I think I think all of the theories have some substantiation, and while, you know, at face value, with the amount of work um, that this latest investigation did, I think it put to light a lot of really good things. But I still think that there's just that sliver of, well, what about that? That I'm not entirely convinced. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and I, and I also like to emphasize that you can't do a hindsight of 2020, those guys are morons. Um, there's a lot of things where we've learned people are morons, and we, we can be a little bit nicer about it. Yeah. <laughs> Jerks. Um, <laughs> so. All right. Uh, so that's the case of, of um, the past incident uh, in itself, and I am going to talk about the game that goes along with it that I've actually played. Um. So, the game uh, that came out is called Polot. It came out in 2015. Excuse me, I actually forgot the game developers. Um, that is uh, imgn.pro. I'm guessing it's Imagine Pro. Um, and it was released to um, PC, PlayStation 4, as well as Xbox One. Uh, it is categorized as a, a survivor horror, horror game, and I would even put it in that it is a first-person experiential walking simulator as well. Mm. I would even put that in there. Um, it's an adaptation of the events and has a great mixture of true storytelling um, as well as historic, uh, historically accurate journal entries. Uh, throughout the game, the player is tasked with finding several pages, including excerpts of the investigator's report, the actual investigator's report, and passages from the journals of one of the hikers, which are, a- which are actually taken from the journal itself. Oh my god. Um, yeah, so, and, and a lot of them are pretty passive, like n- none of it's just like, we're freezing to death or we're going to die because there, there wasn't anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very much you start at the train station where the team starts. And then you travel through the pass. And then you get to the slope of the mountain. So you're actually traveling through the story as I told it um, as this person. Um, but the thing that kind of puts you on edge is you don't know why you're there. You understand that you're investigating, 
why these hikers disappeared and you're finding that information, but at the same time, you're surviving in the cold, just fine. You're walking through a place where they didn't survive, just fine. And you're encountering really creepy shit the whole time. So as you're walking through, yeah. So so while I was playing this, I had a lot of, uh, I, I felt very unsettled that there was always more to the story as I was playing it. And of course I was right. Um, but as you're playing it, um, you get this weird feeling of like, why am I going through these caves? People died in these caves. Why am I going up this mountain? People died in this mountain. Why is there a government facility here? Um, so they so they do this really good job of of creating an atmosphere where you're creeped out just by being the character that you are. Um, the other obviously very unsettling thing is not only are there bad guys, they're invisible. Ah! They're invisible, and you can see them with their foot depressions in the snow, or when a strange orange mist appears. Marketing back to the skin color, uh-huh, on some of the hikers, when a strange orange mist appears, these black beings come out and are just, like, they come out of you at nowhere. And then you can see shadows of what other people did, and you start to piece together the story, but it's only when this strange orange mist appears. It's a really cool feature of the game. I, I enjoyed it very much. I have a great clip. I have a great clip of me getting scared absolutely shitless with it. So, um... <laughs> It's uh, it's it's a very it's a very good game. Um, their presence, yeah, pres- and then uh, da, 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 I already read that. Um, there's references uh, throughout there uh to the hikers' deaths, but you don't actually find any bodies, so you find that super weird. Um, and then you go through underground cra- underground caves with creeks in them. You walk through frozen uh wastelands with shattered trees. Um, you go to a government facility that has a large satellite, and there's some weird shit that happened in the basement of it. Um, you see beast tracks, and you see clues all around you um, that are supposedly telling you a type of truth, but you're not quite sure what that type of truth is. So throughout the game, they're kind of giving you all these different theories, the same theories that I gave you of how potentially these people could have died. Mm-hmm. So um, you have no weapon, but you have your, your typical survival uh, horror um, uh, inventory. Um, you're collecting, obviously, documentation, photographs, um, the actual journal entries, uh, things like that. And you're able to have some small survival things, but you have no weapons whatsoever. Also kind of weird considering you're fighting against some invisible evil beings, right? Um, there's a whole part when you go to, like, an outpost uh, camp where it's like a, it's kind of like a treehouse. Um, it's like a house on stilts, not really a treehouse, but it's like a house on stilts, and it's a radio tower um, command uh, center. And when you go in there, like shit, uh, the, it's it's still one of the most unsettling things I've had in a game. Where you go in there and you hear all the stuff happening around you, you hear things pattering outside, running around you, and you and you just kind of have this this feeling like I'm being watched, something's chasing me, and so you hide. And then weird shit happens all around you, and you see shadows of what people did. It, it's it's a really cool experiential game. Whoa. Um, the best part, the best part of this game, it's completely narrated by Sean Bean. <laughs> that's awesome. It's all Sean Bean. That's awesome. That's that, that's that's the person that they have in it. So he goes. Oops, sorry. So he goes on monologue 
he he you're you're walking through there and you just you just hear his sweet sultry voice as you're walking through being like i know that you're telling me about impending doom but i kind of love this please keep talking so um my main my main piece of my game review is while i like the experience itself um, the puzzles were a little disjointed. I did have to look some up. Obviously, that could also come with the pressures of uh, streaming and trying to finish uh, something in one day. Um, so I completely understand that. Uh, the monsters really were really cool jump scare effect, and I did like how you could find the clues, and it was in a non-linear sense. Mm-hmm. So you could kind of find whatever you wanted and then piece it together, and then that's how you formed your story. Uh, but unfortunately, that made it open for me to literally completely miss an entire act of the game because I found certain things at a certain time and I completely missed an entire story part arc of the game and I jumped ahead to the end and I had no idea what the fuck happened. Oh no. Like, I went from act one I went from act one to act three and then I was done with the game. Oh. And I had no information. Yeah. So it completely that completely ruined my time because I I apparently found enough information to do that, but I didn't find the cutscenes and I didn't find enough of the story to piece together for that to really make sense. So that was my one disappointment with the game is that the story seems really disconjointed and even though they give you the freedom to complete it, it kind of fucks you over if you do it too much. I'm a Nancy Drew gamer. Like I go around and collect everything. Oh yeah. I didn't know that it would trigger something where I get fucked. So I, I, that, that was the main thing I was disappointed with, was, was that, so. I mean, in your defense, me and my mom have done that with a Nancy Drew game, where we <laughs> found too many things, uh, found a puzzle, didn't know, I guess we weren't supposed to be able to complete the puzzle, but because mm-hmm. we completed the puzzle, it triggered the end of the game. Um, Surprise! So we played for like, I don't know, like 20 minutes or something. Um, and we beat the game. And we were like, eh, we're... these games usually take at least an hour, but like typically they take at a least. few hours. Like, yeah. So, I remember mm-hmm. when that happened. So, so, yes. So that's the story of um, of the game Colot and, and the freaking. Uh, Dialtov Pass incident that was inspired by it. It's another game that was inspired by a true event where I think they took the right amount of liberties. Um, they they made the characters in the game personable and they made them um, accurate and respectful. And they didn't make him um, they, like they didn't show bodies. They didn't do anything, but they they made it a, a very experiential game that went into the incident but didn't um, didn't tarnish uh, the people involved. Besides the government. Did a good job with that. But yeah. That's fine. Good job. Yeah. You did good. Thanks. That was great. I know. I talked a lot in that one, too, but yeah. No. It, There's a lot to uncover with that, with how many, how oh many my, conspiracy theories and shit. Yeah. There's so. A, well, there's so many conspiracy theories. Also, I, like, I feel like I knew the story, but I didn't know, like, details, so it was really cool listening to the details, yeah. and I, I think you pieced it together really well, and... Yeah, that's fucking crazy. I still think it was like supernatural shit. <laughs> I think I think something weird happened. Something like, weird like, had to happen. Um, 
like like something weird had to happen. Like I know people panic, and obviously at the moment you can't really judge someone for how they react, uh, which is why I'm trying to keep like a like a thing on that. But I also feel like with experienced as they were, um, with how resourceful they were, and with how, with just their sheer number of people, that that something could have happened um, to just make them not be themselves. Because that that's yeah. really what it came down to was. It, it was it was such a it was such a heartbreaking incident because they did something that was so uncharacteristic of what they were trained to do and what they knew they needed to do or they tried so hard and then just nature worked against them so fiercely um, that there wasn't just enough that they could do. Right. So. Yeah. Well, like my two things that like like I I understand like how they landed upon their like conclusion. Right. Like I understand like. The science of it, like, the whole, like, snow on the entrance of the tent totally makes sense. If you're panicking that you're going to be crushed by snow, you're going to rip through the tent. Like, that makes sense. Like, right. that all, right. like, it, it, and it's and it's understandable that, you know, like, weather can have an effect. You're on a slope. Like, that's probably where you shouldn't have been with the with the snow and the wind and the conditions. Like, I, I can see how they got to that conclusion. Um, but yep. what I don't comprehend is like even with all of that going on why did they split up the way that they did because if you're a big group wouldn't you all run in the same direction like why would you split up the way that you did and then also why were the pants radioactive (laughs) an avalanche so part of that doesn't explain the (laughs) pants (laughs) So part of that was they're they're claiming that uh, two of the members had jobs even though they were university students. Two of the members had jobs working in facilities where radioactive material was present, and that the pants that they wore. I don't I don't know how long any of that stuff stays on clothing, but that at least one of them could have carried that with them. Maybe. But again, to fight against that, they said that the 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 amount was very high. Um and uh, obviously very very higher than normal and higher than it should have been for just being attached to a piece of clothing. Yeah. So. Like that's weird. That's it's so weird. That's weird. That's weird. It's so weird. Especially because like if that's true, if you're gonna say that the person like worked in a facility that had radiation levels and like it probably clung to his pants one day. Like I don't like I feel like his, all his clothes would be slightly radioactive. All his stuff would be slightly radioactive right. because it all came in contact with those pairs of pants. You can't just have like a pair of pants. Also, and this is just because this is what my brain does when I think of radioactivity. Like I understand that you can't see radiation, but for whatever reason, my brain always thinks that yeah. it like glows green or something. So I'm just like picturing a pair of like glowing pants in this tent and I'm like, how is that not evidence? <laughs> like God damn it, fallout and all of your misrepresentations. I know. Like everyone's uh, everyone's over it. in Russia being like, it was a Yeti and I'm like, it was the pants. <laughs> yep. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was the pants. It was indeed the pants. Um Oh my gosh. I never, yeah. So, and then just reading about how much, how many ways wind can kill you. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm super happy I live in a flat land 
with none of that. And I live in the goddamn Windy City, but I don't want that shit. I'm no. 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 Mm -mm. Wind is terrifying. We're done with that. Oof. Wind is terrifying. Oh my gosh. It can create a vortex that makes you go insane. What the fuck? No! I don't <laughs> no. want that. I don't want that. No! I'm oh. going to stay in my high-rises and, and fuck nature. I just, no, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> fuck nature. Not gonna I think, yeah, I think what we've learned from this episode is fuck nature. Fuck nature and uh, keep your radioactive pants at home. That's, uh, that's about that. Yep. Oh my gosh. So. Oh! We did it. We, we did, did it. it. And uh, Zoe and I already have some ideas of what our next month's talk is going to be. Because boy, do we have opinions. Oh yes, um, I'm I'm excited. It it's gonna be. Right. It, I I feel like it's gonna be it's gonna be a slightly different episode. Um, it's gonna be more of a. I feel like it'll be more of a like a free discussion than like we're both coming yes. to the table with like legitimate stories. Um. It's yes. it's gonna be a little different, but I think it's I think it's a good topic. I think it's um it's important and we both care about it very much. So it'll kind of be our wild card episode. Um but yep. I don't know, it'll be fun. Um <laughs> But yeah, thank you guys so much for listening, um, for 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 hearing us talk about crazy stuff in nature. Um I you know, we we hope you enjoyed it and if you did please follow us on twitter and subscribe and follow on any of the listening devices that you may be hearing this on or i guess not listening devices but listening platforms that you may be listening on um yes. and if you like the podcast <laughs> feel free to leave a review because we love seeing those and um it encourages us to make more content for this podcast um aside from just our love and obsession for it um well, yeah, we're, we're we're excited to put this one out. We're continuing the episodes, even though and I thank you. consistently yes. miscount them. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, and also thank you uh, for folks who have either come into streams or have DM'd or asked to post stuff in in Discord uh, to tell us what you liked about episodes, what you uh, enjoyed, and and sort of talking through um, a lot of stuff. It's really great to hear feedback back uh, not only just through reviews but when people actively uh reach out and tell us uh, that they like what we're doing and also give us suggestions because let me say y'all have some good suggestions i don't mm. know how i'm gonna make them fit uh but we'll make they're, it on work. My, they're on my <laughs> list and we're gonna see what we can do. we're gonna see what we can do so thank you very much again everybody uh yeah you're freaking awesome and uh and we can't wait for you to tune in next time yeah we appreciate you and can't wait so stay sloopy Hey, Lucy, we'll see you soon.